This week on Writers Inc. I think we can push the envelope more now because when I uh, when I wrote this, some of the things felt a little too far. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the uh, bad guys at the heart of the story are in IT, and they have these server rooms where they're collecting data on everything everyone does. And I wrote that before Snowden was even. Uh, you know, outed there. We had no idea the US government was doing this. People, you know, guessed or people would be considered paranoid for suggesting it. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. All right. Well, J.D., uh... We have a construction-themed episode today, so we might as well start with a construction update at your house. <laughs> well, luckily, mine's not happening. Well, I do have people in the house. We've got painters that are working in here, and we've got somebody that's doing some some millwork stuff on down on the other end. Um, but I've got the, the garages finally going up. And like I was just telling you, like, off the air, like, it's been insane how fast these guys put this thing together. Like, it's been nothing but a foundation out there since March. And they showed up on Tuesday, and right now they're, they're putting the shingles on the roof. Like, they were that fast. In two, two days, they got the entire building knocked down. And it's a two-story, I and mean, it's like 1,200 square feet. So it's not like it was a, a little structure. Um, so I keep sticking my head out there, you know, because it's another excuse to not work so i just kind of walk out the front door and, and see what they're up to um we've got a nasty storm coming in it's the sky is like as dark as nighttime so i've got a feeling they're gonna have to gonna have to quit sometime soon um well that's good to know because your garage is uh probably as big as my new apartment so if we ever have to move <laughs> we're coming to your garage <laughs> we, we try turning it into like a little you know mother-in-law suite on the second floor like that was the initial plan and I've, I've had a bunch of plumbers come out here but like we're on septic and like our septic tank is on the opposite side of the property and you know we're sitting on nothing but granite um so like the cheapest quote i actually got was between 50 and 150 thousand dollars to get a plumbing in there to get a bathroom in so that, that that's not happening if anything i'm gonna put a bucket in the corner next time my brother shows up and wants to stay in there <laughs> but um not, not gonna be a bathroom anytime soon <laughs> Um, and in happier news, the noise is still holding on on the New York Times list. And it, I just I just saw it a second ago. It, so it, it came out and hit number four when it initially launched. And that was three weeks ago. And last week it hit number seven. So I expected it to drop off because that's kind of the way these things work. But um, as of uh, last night, it's number five. So it's actually going a little bit higher on the list, which is which is kind of cool. Um, reviews have been all over the place. We were talking about this a little bit before we got on the air, you know, because it's such a different book for, for Patterson. He's known for that same, you know, formula, you know, same book after book after book. Um, so, you know, some of his fans don't like the change. Other ones really like the change. So it's like a very decisive group of people, you know, commenting on this thing. And, I, and his reviews come in so fast. Like, I, you know, I can hit refresh and like there's three, you know, three to ten new ones. So I, I try not to do that. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, but the, the book itself, you know, a lot of people seem to like it. A lot of people seem to hate it. Um, I guess the fact that they're talking about it is, is keeping it on the list. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. I know the TV show is, is doing well. They're, they're getting pretty far on that. I was going to say, do you have any, like, I, I mean, it's kind of weird for the book to slip and then go back up. I mean, that happens. But, I mean, do you have any, like, indication of why that's happening? 
No, I mean, I can, I can tell you that it, it did slip on the, um, they've got different lists for the New York Times. They've got the hardcover fiction list, and they've got one that's um, ebook and, and print. Um, so it slipped on the one that's the combination of ebook and print, but it actually went up on the hardcover. Um, so you know, people are picking up the, the physical copy. And, and again, this, this is a, a testament to his audience. Like they, you know, a lot of them prefer you know, the, the physical copy. So we'll see. I'm curious to see if it's going to be in there again next week. And it could be a lot of word of mouth, like you were saying, like people talking about the book and more people picking it up type of thing. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's something different, you know, so maybe that that's why maybe that that's spurring something. Who knows? Um, In publishing news, well, sort of publishing news, I I noticed something strange happening over at Twitter. uh, Twitter. I can't talk today. Um, Twitter. Twitter. Um, (laughs) I'm going to launch a social media site tomorrow called Twitter. Um, (laughs) Twitter is launching something called Communities, which is like their version of Facebook groups. so I, I don't know where they're going with that. I, I'm guessing that they're they're keeping you know they're watching Facebook. They're looking at some of the stuff that's working there, just like Facebook is probably watching them, and they're all kind of stealing ideas from each other. So I, at some point, I think we're going to have one giant social media site that's just all of them, and they're going to look exactly the same. That's exactly what I was just going to say. I I think we're headed to a point now where uh, all the social media platforms are all kind of migrating towards like a common middle ground. And, and they're all going to function. They're all going to have the same features and functions. That that's what it seems like to me. It'll it'll just be a matter of which one are you on, and they're all going to look the same and do the same things. Well, the only the only difference there, I think, and and this is a long term thing, but like one thing to remember though is that Facebook owns Oculus, and I think Facebook eventually could really use VR in a way that some of these other social media companies aren't. <laughs> You know, so I think like imagine you go on Facebook and you're actually talking to your friends, <laughs> you know, yeah, like that I, sort of thing. That that's the future for sure. I mean, if you think yeah. about the world we've been in for the last year and a half, you know, we're we're on Zoom or at least I am for like half my day talking to, to various groups. And, you know, the idea of just putting on a headset and sitting across the table from somebody, you know, making, or at least feeling as if you are that that's huge. Um, but but other things that they're testing, too, like you can attend sporting events, you know, you can go to concerts, you know, watch, watch a concert, your favorite band from the front row. Um, you know, it, it's going to make it very difficult to leave the house, I think, at, yeah. at some point. Um, but that technology is coming for sure. Yeah, it's uh, it, I sort of had have had one eye on the metaverse. And, and maybe this is a, a, a good uh, segue into a little um, futuristic experimentation I've been doing, although it's not very futuristic anymore. But uh, over the past year or so, I've, I've really been using some of like my leisure time just to research blockchain crypto nfts just to kind of familiarize myself with it this web 3.0 stuff isn't going away um and and i think it has i think it has very powerful implications for any any type of small business in the next 10 to 15 years and so just like you know opening account on coinbase i bought you know fifty dollars worth of uh of Bitcoin, I bought a you know a few hundred dollars worth of Ethereum. I'm looking at OpenSea, and, and, and I'm going to buy a couple NFTs just to kind of get a sense of what that feels like. And uh, I, I'm very cautiously optimistic about this element of of where technology is going. I'm not as bullish on on the AI stuff in, in the creation space, but as far as uh, the business tools, the platforms, and currencies, I, I really think this this blockchain stuff is something to pay attention to. Well, considering the way Bitcoin moves around, you'll probably be on the podcast next week telling us about your your billionaire status and the, the, the new the new island you just bought. Yeah, you'll be building a bigger garage than JD next week. <laughs> 
those, those things honestly scare me. I mean, I, I came out of the finance world. I was a chief compliance officer at a brokerage firm before I started writing books full time. And, um, you know, cryptocurrency scares me. Um, but I, I do think it's the future. I think it's it's basically the, the middle step uh, to some type of worldwide currency, um, you know, rather than the, the way we're all divided up now. Yeah, and and I think too that's why I'm I'm very cautiously wading into this pool. I'm I'm not dumping my life savings into any any cryptocurrency right now. You know, uh, basically spend money I would use in Vegas is kind of what I'm putting into into crypto just to kind of, you know, get a sense to see how it works. Uh, but I think this decentralized finance, uh, there's going to come a point where I think um, the 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 world's banking institutions and the world's governments are gonna. They're going to rebel because it's 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 cutting them out of that picture, and and so uh, I really don't know where it's going. But I, I for me as someone who likes to learn, I'm just kind of kind of playing around right now. We'll see where it goes. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw a little bit of that, you know, before I left the, the finance business, and for the most part, governments and regulators were falling back on their uh, ability to not they they weren't able to police cryptocurrency, um, you know, so they were using things like money laundering and you know scary terms like that to try and keep people away from it. Um, but, you know, and, and it's very much Wild West for sure. I mean, that's why it, it, it has these kind of spikes and why it's up and down and all over the place. Um, but but it will level out. You know, it, it's definitely the future. It's one of those things. I mean, I don't want to give financial advice, but I think it'd be very difficult to get in in a bad time right now, um, you know, because you're just you're so early um, in, in something like this. You know, if, if, if you can buy it and sit on it and just put it away and get it out of your head, you'll, you'll probably do OK with it. You, you don't want to be the guy who's watching it day to day because that you, you will pull out the rest of your hair. You might even pull out your beard yeah and and then you know if you sit on it in in 10 years time you can buy the writers inc podcast nft screenshots video screenshots <laughs> that we're gonna be selling <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> if, even i don't want those <laughs> all right nobody, well, nobody uh, wants that no. <laughs> especially if they could see us all now it's a good thing they can't uh well, let's pl- take, at least your plant's still alive my Maybe plant is alive time to that's do true NFT. Yeah. Well, let's take care of some business, and then we'll get to our, our guest for the week. Uh, we want to always give a great shout-out to our sponsors, Kobo Writing Life. If you are considering taking any of your books wide beyond just Amazon, you definitely have to go to Kobo Writing Life. Uh, you can set your price. There's no exclusivity agreements, and there's all kind of promotional opportunities that you can take advantage of. So if you need to talk to Tara or anyone at the team, you can go to KoboWritingLife.com and find them, and they're extremely helpful. And, uh, and get you set up. We also want to give a shout out to all of our patrons. Uh, if you are interested in becoming a patron of the Writers Inc. podcast, where you can submit questions for our monthly Q&A episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash Writers Inc. podcast. JD, that takes us to our guest for the week. All right, we've got Hugh Howey back on. Um, he just recently toured the sets for Wool, um, which is based on his, his series. Um, so he's going to talk about that a little bit. And we just we really wanted to get him back on just so he could give us an update on it. And, and hopefully he's going to come back again to just kind of keep us in the loop. Um, they've started filming, um, so he's going to you know, touch on that a little bit. Um, but very interesting. I mean, a lot of us have stuff that's optioned. A lot of us have, you know, friends that, that do or, or, you know, we, we see that brass ring and we want to be part of it. He's, Hugh is right in the middle of it right now, and he's gracious enough to, to fill us in and keep us posted on what's happening. Um, so here he is, Hugh Howie. All right, man, take us into the silo. What's Juliet up to? What, what are things looking like right now? Uh, right now, Juliet is doing a lot of uh, promotion for Reminiscence with, uh, <laughs> that just came out with uh, Hugh Jackman. And uh, Juliet just wrapped on uh, the latest Mission Impossible with uh, 
with Tom Cruise. So uh, she's been super busy. <laughs> uh, we So we, we've got like almost all the cast set, but we've only announced two um, uh, members uh, so far. Juliet being played by Rebecca Ferguson, uh, who's been just super, super busy lately. I'm, I, I don't know how we landed her, except uh, we must have paid her a bunch or she fell <laughs> in love with the material. Uh, actually, I, I will say one of the one of the things I love about this adaptation uh, and Wool in general is that um, actors um, they don't, don't get a lot of female leads like this where they uh, you know Rebecca's been in a lot of stuff but she's always the lead sidekick or the lead female character and co-star um, with you know Hugh Jackman, Tom Cruise, these other uh, people that it's hard to um, uh, to kind of take over the role, you know, and, and have a center stage. But with this book and this TV show, it's, it's all her. So I think we were able to kind of punch above our weight with casting because of that. Um, a lot of actors are just uh, excited about opportunities like this. And I, I've had some conversations with her about the book and the character and why she loves Juliet so much. It's the same reason readers love this character so much. So I think, to answer my own uh, rhetorical question, I think that is how we, we landed her. Um, so she, uh, right now she's memorizing lines and getting ready to go out and try to save humanity. Love it. Uh, what, yeah. You said you had a conversation with her. What were, what were the kind of questions she might have been asking you or what sort of information did she need from you to, to better fulfill the role? She's amazing. She's absolutely brilliant. So our, our conversations quickly went into like deep philosophy, like evolutionary psychology, um, uh, in-grouping and out-grouping and the, uh, the stratification of this society and, and the society that I'm commenting on when I wrote the book. She's interested in all of that stuff. Uh, she's an executive producer on this show. So uh, that means that, um, you know, we kind of expect her to bring her creativity and her her vision to the work, not just come in and, and read what's on the page, but um, uh, help build the world out uh, through her character and, and through her experience. So uh, yeah, we've, I mean, we just have had real, real deep conversations, um, mostly through WhatsApp videos and, and voice messages um, uh, because we're in different time zones, different countries. But uh, I've been really impressed with her and the way she approaches uh, this work and I uh, got to see her in the table read, read the first couple of uh, episodes and uh, she's the real deal. We're really, really lucky to have her. Nice. Yeah. I, I know, I know you and you're writing well enough to know that you're, you're a big thinker systems kind of guy that you're, you're thinking long-term broad, wide scale. Uh, so I, I imagine those kind of conversations were a real treat for you. Super. Uh, oh, I, and I left out Dune uh, as far as what she's busy with. Uh, oh, right. That's coming out like in uh, a month and a half or something. So no big deal. She's in one of the uh, biggest adaptations of one of the biggest books ever written in the genre. Uh, and I, I, every now and then, I, whenever I go by a bookstore, I go in to sign copies of Wool. And Wool and Dune are always within sight of each other on the bookshelf because of uh, sharing, you know, uh, a last... Uh, Shout out her last name, so near, nearby to uh, Herbert's. And uh, I'll take a picture of Dune and Wool together and send it to her. But it's crazy that she's going to end up being in, in both of these four-letter kind of <laughs> neighboring 
nowhere near the same level of, uh, of, of quality or history, but they're both these perennial uh, sci-fi uh, books that just keep selling and she's leading both. It's amazing. It's really incredible. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, oh, let's see. So I, I, I avoided your question, which was about um, big systems, long-term thinking. Yeah, I just you know I know I know the kind of guy you are and it, that you enjoy those conversations and and, the, and those topics as opposed to the more mundane stuff. So I'm just wondering if that was really enjoyable for you to have those kind of conversations with your lead role. Super enjoyable. Um, I even one of the um, responses I had to her in an email uh, I liked so much that I put up on a, a, as a blog post just to share with um, readers or people who follow my blog about some of the thinking that goes into this stage of the adaptation or the stage we were in a month ago. Um, but yeah, I geek out about conversations like that. I had the best time in the writer's room with the other writers on the show as we were thinking about what the themes are and what's important and what to stress and what to leave out and uh, what the DNA of the, of the book was. And I've been able to do that with a few different books in, in adaptation and Sometimes we have to like, okay, get back to writing the show because we start talking too much about what the show's about. Can you, can you dig into that a little bit for us? What is the DNA of this adaptation? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when, when I sign the, the book to people, I usually write like Dare to Hope. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm, I'm very deliberate with my word choice there. Um, I think hope is this courageous choice that we have to make. And I think it's often like the cool kids who are pessimistic and talking about how the world's going to hell. And it's so much easier to, to write Jeremiah's than it is to look at the long arc of history and see how things are getting better. And um, it can sound like you're not a serious thinker if you are optimistic about the future. Like you're, you must not be aware of all that's wrong. But I think the next level of thinking is that you're aware of what's wrong. You're also aware that like all the problems of yesteryear were all solved because we're aware of what's wrong. And we try to figure out how to solve these problems. And we're pretty, pretty clever. And uh, so I think, I think uh, hope and optimism went out and the whole, the whole um, uh, metaphor of, of wool is that people have this one screen. They see the world through one screen, which is how most people see the world, whether it's through our, our phone screen or our, you know, watching, uh, you know, one news channel all day, or, um, you know, the, the world is filtered. Like when we, when we watch hurricane coverage, they're going to go to the absolute worst spot and put the person in the worst bit. doesn't mean that it's not bad there, but I've been through storms before and, you know, I just, you can watch the news coverage kind of converge on the worst thing. And that means that our, our assumption of what's happening everywhere is the worst thing that's happening in one localized spot, which is, you know, never quite the right, um, uh, you know, total viewpoint. So it's difficult uh, for these people in the silo who have one screen to imagine the world's better than what's presented there. But those are the people who are, who are the heroes in this, in this story and the ones who are punished for thinking that way. And I, peeling back the layers of why the world is engineered this way and what it says about us and the way we promote pessimistic thinking and reward it. 
uh, is what really made me start writing the book and something that we've carried into the TV show. Yeah, and and to be perfectly honest, I mean, you you wrote that book a long time ago uh, in the in the publishing world. Uh, you know what what has what has changed as you're cycling through these conversations about the adaptation. What do you feel is different about the message or the DNA of the story um, now versus when you wrote the original story back in, was it 2010 or 2009? Yeah, it's been 10 years. I, I think we can push the envelope more now because when I, uh, when I wrote this, some of the things felt a little too far. Uh, there's, uh, you know, the uh, bad guys at the heart of the story are in IT and they have these server rooms where they're collecting data on everything everyone does. And I wrote that before Snowden was even, uh, you know, outed there. We had no idea the US government was doing this. People, you know, guessed or people would be considered paranoid for suggesting it. But uh, when I wrote this, it was just like, um, let me make up the worst example of where technology could lead, uh, you know, a totalitarian system of government. And, uh, I had no idea that it was actually happening while I was writing it because, you know, we didn't find out till, till later. Um, and then um, if you've seen the, the social dilemma, this amazing documentary on Netflix about just the kind of the dangers and, and problems with uh, these large tech companies and what they're, what they're doing to us and what they're, what we're doing to ourselves using those tools. I mean, where we share a lot of the blame here. Um, but uh, you know, that's, just the, the fact that the things to worry about are the people coding our um, interfaces was so ridiculous when I wrote the book. And now it seems a little tame. And that means that we get to like lean into it instead of shying away from it, really push like that message, which for me was theoretical and now is very practical. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh it's some of the things in wool, like really like re rereading it now, it, it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing where, where things have gone and, and some of the things that you wrote about and, and kind of where we are now. Uh, as far as, um, you know, a, a lot of writers dream of, of the adaptation, whether that's the big screen or the small screen. And, uh, and I think for, for many folks, you represent a, a beacon of hope and, and uh, specifically on the indie side, because, uh, you know, traditionally published books getting adapted is happens all the time. Uh, but this started as an indie project. So can you just talk a little bit about the trajectory of, of how it got to where it is now? Because I also know that the, the property changed hands a few times over the years. Yeah. So we, the, it started with uh, Ridley Scott and 20th Century Fox. And at the, at the time that deal happened, um, it wasn't, the book wasn't a household name, really. Uh, uh, it was um, only just, it wasn't even consolidated into a novel for very long at that point and hadn't done any publishing deals anywhere in the world. So it was just the strength of uh, some initial interest in readers and uh, having, uh, like my, my very first adaptation offer came from BBC America and it was before the book was even finished before the fifth part was out. Someone had just read the first three parts and like, we want to grab the rights to this. So I didn't even have an agent at the time. So a lot of the story about what it takes to get a deal are, um, 
true in an aggregate sense, but not true in a specific sense, which means that there is no roadblock to anything happening. It's just the odds are very, very small. But anyone out there saying that uh, if you make this decision, uh, decision A, then X will never happen. Um, you can't say this things anymore. You never really could say them. I knew they weren't true when I was making decisions with my publishing career back in the day when self-publishing was not popular. And everyone was saying this would be the death of your career. It didn't make sense to me then. I didn't, didn't believe it. I didn't have any reason other than just common sense. Um, and it turned out to be true. So I will say, though, that I I, and I've got a long Twitter thread uh, pinned on top of my Twitter feed. If anybody watching this wants to go read it, it's about managing expectations with adaptations. And I wrote it before I got a green light on Wool or Beacon 23, two different self-published books that were serialized, uh, came out as very inexpensive short stories that are consolidated in novels. And both are, uh, are greenlit. One's filming now, one's in the late uh, writing stages. And we've already casted Lena Hetty. So it's getting to the point where it's going to be more expensive not to make uh, Beacon 23 than to make it. Um, luckily for me, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner with contracts there. Um, but uh, what it, what it, the, my takeaway when I visited the wool set was the audacity of any of us to expect our stuff to get adapted. Like I, it changed my mind and it happened kind of in a, in a, 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 a very discreet moment when I was walking through one of the hallways that's just office after office of people working on making this world a reality. I'd already visited the sets. These sets are enormous. We've, I had already seen some of the shooting, met some of the cast. So I, I understood what was happening. But going through an office building where everyone in every office was getting up and commuting to work and drinking their coffee and packing their lunch and sitting down at a computer to work out graphic designs and pound out, you know, edits to scripts and print out blueprints and every wall is covered in blueprints. Walking through that, I realized that any of us who say, why isn't my book getting adapted for TV or film? We're the, we're the biggest uh, assholes in the world. Like, I, I, I was almost apologizing to everyone I met. Like, I'm kind of sorry I wrote the book and created so much work for everybody. And of course, they're saying the opposite. Like, we're happy to have the work and we, we love the material and we're happy to make it, but there's, there's several hundred people working every single day to turn a book into a show. And you and I know a lot of stuff gets made because there's more content out there than you and I could ever watch. But every one of those feels like a miracle to me. And everyone seems so audacious that any author who had that happen to them spent any part of that process thinking that they deserved for this to happen because it requires moving mountains to make these things to turn a book or a script into a TV show or film. And none of us deserve it. Even people who've had it happen to them, the Stephen Kings have had it happen like 20 times, Harlan Coben's who have like eight TV shows, like none of us deserve that much energy and effort to turn something that we just wrote on a page into a big production. So I walked away from that, that feeling, just really thinking like, I, I never expect anything to happen before to manage expectations. But now I realize I never should have expected anything to happen uh, ever because of just, it's ridiculous to expect that that many people are going to go to work every single day for six months, eight months to turn your, uh, it's, it seems like we ask such a small thing. Like 
I, I wrote a great story. How come no one will turn this into a TV, to a TV show? We say that without realizing like what is involved and it's a huge ask and it's absolutely ridiculous. And so I walked away just feeling humbled and, and uh, embarrassed by it all, to be honest. It's, it also sounds like you got a bit of a, a imposter syndrome underneath all that too. I've had that for since I was 12 and started writing my first story and two chapters in realized it was terrible compared to everything I've ever written. So no, the imposter syndrome never goes away. It just gets worse over time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a lot of that kicking in. I just can't, I, I, if anybody walks onto a set of a TV show that's being adapted from their book and they're like, it's about damn time. Like, I just can't, like, there's no way you can have that mindset. Like, when you see what goes into it, you must just, you have to feel super lucky and feel like you won the lottery. And that's, that's what it felt like every single moment for me. You don't certainly don't mention names, but it, it almost sounds as though you've, you've met authors who have that expectation, that unrealistic expectation. Uh, well, I think all of us do to some degree, like when we write something, when we write something that feels cinematic and gets a bit of a readership, or even if we write something that we love ourselves, we've, we've seen movies based on, books that we liked and so we know it happens and so we're like this would make a good movie like why won't someone turn this into a movie and i think it's not until you see everything that goes into it that you realize like oh that's why not it's also the the level i mean some some stuff can be filmed cheap but like cheap these days is like a 10 or 20 million dollar film and uh very few books will ever earn that much money in sales and expecting a a production company or a studio to spend that much making something, hoping that they'll make double that, especially in this really uncertain climate. Um, and I don't think many people have that, have that hubris when they examine what they're really asking. But I think we all have that knee jerk, like this would make a great film or why, why can't I get one film or TV show made? We all have kind of that bug in the back of our brains. I would I totally agree. I mean, I, I think all artists have to think that the art they're making is is awesome. Like, otherwise, why would you be doing it? Why would you keep doing it if you didn't feel that way? Yeah, it's just it's this weird thing that I, I first noticed with American Idol that uh, the people who saunter onto the stage and they're like, "I'm the next American Idol," are usually tone deaf, and they um, and people laugh at them. I I don't because like they're just born like I am. They can't hear perfect pitch, and they don't have any talent so they don't know what good singing sounds like and the people who come on humble and unsure of themselves uh and then belt out you know the ones who go on to win the show some of those people are unsure of themselves because they know what greatness sounds like and they're trying to emulate that and i see that in all creative endeavors now like the people who read the best works and the, the highest level of of uh all forms of literature uh, that's what they're aspiring to, and you're never going to reach it because you're you're cherry picking absolute best stuff from from all of world literature, and inundating yourself with the the absolute greats. You're you're, you're only going to approach that asymptotically. You're never going to reach it or surpass it. And so, of course, you feel imposter syndrome. And then the people who are like, I wrote the next Harry Potter, probably have never read Harry Potter or anything great. You know, like they they've read a lot of like. Uh, other kinds of content like blog posts and Facebook feeds and Twitter. And they're like, this story is the best thing ever. They're, they're tone deaf. They're they're They have no perfect pitch when it comes to reading. 
it's not their fault. They haven't maybe just read a lot of the right stuff. So I, I think confidence to me is a sign of maybe a, a lack of exposure to the best stuff out there. Uh, when you when you surround yourself with greatness, you ha- it has to humble you. It has to make you feel smaller. And I, before I became a writer, I was just, and still am an avid reader. And, and every time I read something, it blows me away. It's like, I never want to write another book ever again. Someone's doing it better than me. Yeah, Lee Child told me that uh, you know you have to you have to digest decades of stories <laughs> before you get good at it. And I think the older I get, and the longer I do this, I, I think there's there's a real element of truth there that uh, the Dunning Kruger phase of learning can can really stretch out for a lot of people. And as you said, if you're not reading on a regular basis, if you're not studying masterworks, it's hard to know what you if what you have is is worthy or not. Absolutely, yeah. Lee's Lee's. 100% correct there. I, I, I liken it to like listen to a lot of uh, music or, um, you know, watching a lot of sports and studying, uh, studying the game tape. Um, you just have to absorb through repetition over and over again before you start to see the, the patterns and structures and, and see them in a way that you're not even aware of them. I think a lot, of, a lot of the great writers know what to do without knowing why it's the thing to do. It's just uh, uh, an absorbed sense. Um, I enjoy trying to tease those things out. Like why, what do these things have in common that I've enjoyed and what makes a great story great? Uh, and then reading all the people that have worked in that vein, you know, with the, um, the hero's journey and the, um, Campbell's works and, and, uh, the, there a lot of people have like tried to come up with the kind of the algorithm for why some stories work. And I don't shy away from that. I know some people think it's not creative or it's not, pure art to disassemble it but that's insane like we disassemble music all the time like uh there's a reason chord uh progressions are what they are there's a reason you know certain notes on a keyboard resonate with each other there's a math to it um math and music are are almost synonymous or so closely related and i think to, to think that the same is not true of uh like our evolutionary psychology and the stories that we love uh, ignoring that is giving up on a lot of uh, what makes writing fun and, and enjoyable. Uh, so true. I mean, I've been in many band situations where you, you don't you don't just start with a whole song. You start with a phrase or you start with a chord or a scale and, and then you, you build it out from there. And it is very mechanical and it's very mathematical at times. Uh, that's not to discount the, the creative magic that occurs. And that's not necessarily something you can teach. Or, or even learn, but like the core elements are certainly something you can study and that will help you improve your craft. I don't know why people think that creativity is on one side, math is on the other. Like, have they never done math? It's <laughs> some of the most creative I've ever felt was learning to code and write programs. And you're like, okay, this is the problem I have to solve. And these are the, the tools and the bits that can do various things, which none of them directly lead to that solution. And how do I combine them? It's uh, it's the ultimate in creativity, and uh, so I, I think um, this idea of separating our left and right brains is just a weird dichotomy, and it's a simplification. Uh, we we love if we can like just categorize things; it makes it feel like we've we've learned them. Like architecture is like memorizing three different types of column, uh, and and once you've done that, you know it, you know everything. It's like uh, there's there's more to columns than. Then, then there's three categories and uh, there's a lot more to uh, art than just this like right brain good, left brain bad. Never understood that. 
It's and they're Doric, Ionic, and Corinthian. If you're curious, <laughs> I don't know why I know <laughs> that. <laughs> because that's the only thing you have to know to to get through architecture. So. <laughs> well, I know there were many variables that uh, went into. Um, your success with this particular adaptation. So it, I, this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm going to ask you anyways. Uh, your your flair and skill around serialized storytelling, uh, that's, been, that's something you've done for a long time. You're doing a Velo project now. Uh, what, what role did that play, do you think, in, in the ability to take wool and adapt it to a different medium? It's a great question. Um, I think... It, probably the biggest factor it had is that it's my, I'm most adept at writing stories like that. And I only know that because I've written like uh, 20 novels and the three that I've written in a serialized fashion are by far and away my three most popular books and my three bestsellers, which are Wool, Beacon 23 and Sand. Um, coincidentally, kind of, uh, all three were written in five parts and released um, pretty in pretty rapid succession. And I think um, the style of writing that that opens up, where you can kind of change the voice and the point of view from uh, entry to entry in a way that would be jarring within a novel, just opens up so many creative uh, opportunities that I think let me write my best version of each story. I think it also helped the popularity and the sales that you were getting all these bits uh, in quick order so that uh, the Amazon algorithms fed on it, word of mouth fed on it. It's the difference between a weekly show that people are talking about as they come out and they're anticipating the next one versus the ones that they binge watch and then kind of don't talk about after you know a few weeks. So I think all those factors helped in the sales, which is a huge part of of adaptations like Hollywood is lazy. They, they're just looking to do sequels and remakes and um, adapt things that have a proven track record. So uh, that's the first part of the answer is that um, that style of writing led to the success of the books creatively and, and commercially, which both helped um, get interest in, a, in an adaptation. I think uh, the other thing that that it helped is TVs of course are episodic, but they're also written in acts within each episode and uh, films uh, also have like a clear, like usually three act structure and learning to write uh, with many arcs within a larger arc. I think when you, when you read those works for people who are looking to adapt things, they can see the structure that they're going to adapt right there. It's already in the in the book. They they know they can tell that cliffhanger moment where we went from act one to act two and the the book took a big turn. Like it's a little softer in a full novel where that happens than it is in a serialized work. So it's possible that that helps people who who option these things visualize the uh, the adaptation. I can't say that you know the three books that have had the most interest in Hollywood. Um, all have that structure as well. So the, none of those things uh, worked against me, let's say. I think they all uh, worked in my favor. But of course, the biggest element in all of this is luck. Uh, I'll say that until 
the a lucky day that I die. But <laughs> you have to get lucky for any of this to happen. And you have to get lucky many times in a row. It's like winning the lottery, you know, five times in a row in order to get something to the stage that these things are in. And again, read the pen thread on my Twitter feed because that's the, the attitude that I carried throughout the last 10 years of this. And I think I wouldn't be... We wouldn't be far this far along in these uh, works getting transitioned had I not had that attitude from the beginning. Saved my bacon so many times. Yes, that thread is gold. We'll definitely link to it. Hey, I know you have a really important visitor that uh, that you need to get to. So uh, maybe we can wrap up the conversation. If you could give us a sense of um, you know what's next in the production process as far as what you can talk about or on the schedule or what you kind of see on the horizon. Yeah, I. Look, I'll talk about I'll talk about anything uh, until they tell me to shut up. And uh, so far, I haven't heard from the the lawyers, so I haven't gone over the edge yet. Um, so they're uh, just filming now, and we've got a very kind of complicated uh, film uh, schedule laid out because we have very high profile actors. Uh, Tim Robbins is the other that's been mentioned as playing Bernard, kind of our uh, our foil or bad guy though. Uh, it's fun talking to Tim about, uh, uh, I saw him in, in London while I was on set. We walked around and looked at all the, the sets, just talked about the story of the character together. And uh, he gets that, you know, uh, Bernard in his own mind is not the bad guy. He's the hero of the story. And I love that, that <clears throat> complexity of these characters that it's not black and white really. And you should really wonder like who's got the better chance of saving humanity uh him or juliet but working around their schedules means that uh like we've got to shoot everything we can with them when we have them so they can go off and do their other projects got very complicated large sets to to build and 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 so juggling all that's just what's underway right now but uh we'll be shooting through uh through december into next year it's going to take uh take a while to get this first season uh in the can and off to post and it'll probably be a year and a half or two years before it hits the air because it just takes that long to to make these things so it's all like the most exciting thing that's ever happened to me is happening right now and it's going to be forever before anybody could still like see any any part of it um and then hopefully uh once we get uh the first few episodes uh at least on film we'll uh try to get Apple and AMC to sign off on a, on a second season and then start writing. And that'll be a, that'll be when I'll get really busy again. Oh, and the next thing uh, exciting for me is going back in October, November for another set visit to see some more scenes and also to uh, uh, get in the background for some kind of weird cameo. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Even if it gets like cut out of the final uh, uh, takes, uh, it'll just be fun to be on set and get uh, to put on some wardrobe and uh, get some makeup on and, I don't know, like sweep or do something in the background. <laughs> oh, I don't know that plan. I'm looking forward to it. Though. It's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Uh, just just a quick mention uh, that uh, whatever, whatever uh, construction bugs that JD has, <laughs> he sent them to Hugh Howie for this episode. <laughs> Uh, you, uh, in his apartment in New York City, the unit next to him was being renovated. And so th that's what those noises were that you heard in the recording. And we decided just to power through it because that's our tradition here on Writer's Inc. 
construction noise is very much like white noise to me at this part. It feels weird if there, if there isn't any going on. So I, <laughs> I felt very much at home listening to you. Well, nice, Zach. I, uh, you know, off the air, you you said that you really enjoyed this interview. So I uh, figure we'll start with you. You can kind of open it up. Um, what tickled your fancy in this conversation? Yeah, I mean, there was there was a lot of stuff. I mean, this is really uh, this is really interesting. I mean, obviously, Hugh's been around a while. I mean, it's crazy to think ten years, you know. Um, and obviously, he has been at the a big focus for a long time because as you guys talked about in the interview, you know, he was really the first indie to break out and have all this stuff happen where, you know, uh, Ridley Scott bought the rights and it's been passed around and stuff. And, um, it's finally getting to the finish line now. Like wool is going to be a television show, which is going to be awesome. Um, and, and, and I really, God, there's so many places I could start. Like there's a lot of cool stuff, but I, I really, I liked where he talked about, um, kind of the attitude around like adaptations and you know people being like oh you know like why can't my thing get made and how he sat there and actually saw like how much work goes into it and uh it really just kind of took him back to be like man i've been selfish this whole time like i just had to sit down like it's like he pitched himself like i just have to sit down with a computer and like type words of what this looks like in my head these people actually have to bring it to life you know um and i think about that a lot too like you know when i'm uh i see comments on stuff like in the video game world a lot when people are like oh i can't believe they're charging 60 dollars for that and i'll wait till it goes on sale and it's like man like that game took like seven years to make (laughs) and like all the stuff that goes into that and and it's same thing with like a movie or a tv show and um I, i really thought that his you know kind of like checking people's attitudes on that and just thinking like like he said there's a ton of content out there but like every one of those is a miracle i think was his exact words and when you really think about how much work goes into every single thing it's amazing that this much stuff is coming out well the simple way to look at it and you know most of us you know we 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 go to the movies we we see some a preview for something we want to see we hop in the car we head over to the theater you know we spend two hours there and and then we're done and you know it's it's out of our life and it's either we liked it or we didn't like it but that's it and it just it kind of passes by in a blip um but yeah if you talk to anybody you know who's had a you know something adapted and turned into this it it is a years long process you know five ten years going on behind there um i talked to a friend of mine a couple weeks back and he kind of summed it up by by saying if you watch the credits at the end of a movie you know think of each of those names as a puzzle piece every one of those puzzle pieces has to align and come together in order for that movie to happen and and that's so true and you know i i'm blessed i've got a couple projects that are that are you know in various stages of of i call it hollywood hell um at, at this point and you know one of the things that always comes up on these conference calls when they're they talk about somebody that they want to bring into the fold whether it's a writer or a director or an actor or an actress or whatever is is that person easy to work with somebody that we're going to want to deal with um, especially when you start talking about series, you know, because you're taking people that are going to be together for three, four years. You know, the amount of time that we spend in high school, these people are going to have to work together and they're going to have to get along and they're going to have to, you know, create something, you know, that, that other people are going to want to watch. And if you've got one bad apple in that group, the, the entire tree can, can rot. Now, the real question I have is, Jay, did you uh, did you secure a cameo in Wool? because <laughs> it seems like your movie career has been going i know hugh said he's going to be in it or i hopes. know you know i it's funny I, when i listen back to it i i forgot to to pitch him my my acting chops even though i don't have any uh 
<laughs> I, I not can, yet. Not yet. I mean, I, you know, who knows? It, it seems like I'm lining up, uh, you know, extra roles here left and right. So maybe I'll just send him a picture of my beard and say, hey, this, this would definitely work in the silo. I mean, this would fit right in. I, I love what he said about imposter syndrome, too. Yeah. Um, you know, like this guy is standing there in the middle of the set for his own TV show based on a book that he created, you know, something he literally made up, you know, from scratch, and, and he still has imposter syndrome. So that kind of puts the rest of us in, in our place, I think. I, that's one of those things, I guess, that just doesn't go away. Yeah, I, I think, too, uh, you know, to, to be a little meta for, for a moment, like, I, uh, there's there there are certain people who you talk to in life and the conversation kind of flows and there are other people where it feels very forced and with Hugh Howie every time I've talked to him it's I've felt I've felt the flow and I think that's because he he seems to be such a a humble grounded person like he I love his perspective on things like he he's he's very meta himself and he likes he thinks big picture and he thinks big idea and whenever whenever you hear him talk or even if you read his tweets or you read his blog post he's just a very grounded guy and and i and i think it's it's uh it's inspirational for for others who may be starting off earlier in their in their author career to know that like you can be grounded you can be humble you can be compassionate and still have success and and i think in this world that's a that's a great sort of feeling or lesson to get when, when you hear someone like you talk well it's you know i i don't think i've said this in the podcast but i know jay's heard me say this but you know when i when i first moved to nashville i worked at a music store and like we had everybody i mean every every country star you could think of i mean stevie wonder like everyone came in and the one thing i learned is like the the biggest jerks are the people who are either on the way up or on the way down. Like it always seemed like the really top tier people were always like super, super humble. And, uh, and, and so it was, it was interesting to hear um, him kind of touch on that. Like you said, and, and I, and I do, I think one thing he said too is I think, I think we all kind of deal with imposter syndrome, you know, like it's, you know, it's just, I just think it's something that you just deal with, you know, it's, it's kind of, it, it, there's always there's always going to be someone better than you out there like no matter no matter who you are and what you do you know so i don't know it's it's interesting interesting conversation there you know the the other thing that he brought up was um how he felt the way his books uh, books were structured you know they could kind of lent yeah. themselves to a series yeah. um that's that's huge too i think a lot of people don't necessarily you know read into that when they're when they're going through a novel but um yeah the, the cadence of his stories is just it's very it's perfect for for that type of thing um and you know if you're listening to this right now listen to this this episode you may want to go back and listen to the Flaherty brothers because they had talked about adapting that Stephen King short story into a full-on series and how they had to create that 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 cadence and create that rhythm um you know Hughes books in a lot of ways have that built in and you know when you're having these these pitch meetings you know if you're an author and you're, you've got your books in front of somebody that you know that that works in that world you know having that structure already there goes a, a long way um and you know for the most part they, they feel it out like they they know when they pick up a book like it's a good book but you know it's either it has to go towards film or it has to go towards a you know a streaming series or something like that and, and for the most part you, you can usually tell you know I don't JD, I don't know if you have different thoughts on this or if you disagree, Zach. But I'm I almost feel like right now, if you if you start any project and you write it in a serialized fashion, you almost can't lose as far as structure. Like in other words, if you if you write a novel, adapting that to a serialized format could be very challenging. But if you write 
from the beginning in a serialized format, adapting that to a novel is not not difficult at all. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I almost feel like that sort of that. And I don't know what that I, I can't say I understand exactly what that ebb and flow is of that serialized arc. But I think starting out with that, it's it almost seems you have a lot more options as opposed to starting with a very long form story and then trying to break that up. Yeah, I, I think I think what you nailed on there is, you know, it's the approach of like looking at like taking that as like a base of your structure to write a novel, you know. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing with with Dead South, which I'm working on now, you know, with that series. And because um, I can tell you, like, as a it's weird, like as a reader, serialized fiction does not really appeal to me. Like it, it just that structure. But if you can as a writer, I feel like if you can kind of like cloak that in a way, like you use that structure, but still do it as like Hugh did that. I mean, I mean, wool reads as a novel. It doesn't read like something that you would read on Vela or something like that, or, or like a, a, what, what is known as like serialized fiction. Um, and, and, but I, but I do think that taking that approach, like you're saying, um, can can really make your story like well paced and make it where the reader doesn't really want to put that book down necessarily. Well, I think a lot of it, you know, if you look at it more from a, a business standpoint, you know, people like what's familiar to them. So it's it's much easier for a reader to return to a second in series, a third in series, where it's, you know something that they already you know they know the characters, they know the places, they know you know roughly the scenario. Um, you know, it, it feels familiar. It makes them feel comfortable. Um, and, and that's, you know, that, that works well. And then also, you know, right now streaming is, is hot, you know, series is, is hot and, and that's the stuff that's selling. And, you know, you, you can, you can write a, you know, a standalone novel and you can get a feature film deal, but you know, if, if, if you're going, you're more likely, I think at this point to get a, a series deal. Um, and if your, your book is, you know, either reads as a series or it's part of a series, like, you know, then you've already got half the puzzle already solved. So it just kind of, you know, helps nudge you in that particular direction. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about uh, for sure. So, any other uh, any other big takeaways from from the conversation before we kind of uh, tee it up for next week and take us on out? I, I honestly wanted to hear more about his conversation with Tim Robbins. I was going to say he got uh, to walk yeah. around the set with Andy Dufresne. <laughs> <and Frayne. laughs> yeah, how cool is that? But but after listening to, um, you know, Patterson had told me to listen to, to Green Lights, the Matthew McConaughey story, and, and there's a, a, a section in there where he talks about, you know, he basically explains how he got into character um, and, and, like, the switch in his mind, like, the thoughts that went through his head in order to, you know, go from becoming, you know, from being Matthew McConaughey to becoming this particular person. Like, he literally changed into that person. And that's what Tim... Tim Robbins was basically telling Hugh he was you know he was taking a character somebody that you know, he's just reading on on page and turning him into a real person in, in his head he becomes that person I mean that's why he's such a solid actor but like that kind of dialogue to me is priceless as an author because if you can hear that and you can pick up on you know even little tidbits of it it's going to help you with character development for sure yeah def definitely dialogue as well there's no doubt yeah. so nice so who do we got up uh next week Next week, we've got John and Jesse Kellerman. Um, so the Kellerman family, I, I imagine they have like every wall in their house lined with bookshelves at this point because you've got John Kellerman who's been out there, you know, selling books for a long time. His wife, Faye, has been out there for a long time. Their son, uh, Jesse, is now part of the, the family business. Um, so John and Jesse have a book coming out together called The Burning. Uh, it's due out on September 21st, and they're going to come on and tell us all about it. Excellent. Looking forward to it. So to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers, Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.